Going into 2021, we live in a country so divided that it seems like we're living with two different presidents. Regardless of whether you're for Biden, Trump, or none of the above, we need to come together. I'm Clay Aiken, and on my podcast with Politicon called How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? That's what I try to do by bringing on guests from all sides of the political spectrum to try and answer that question. So far, that's included folks like Michael Steele, Ann Applebaum, Joel Stein, Jennifer Palmieri, David Frum, Paul Begala, Adam Carolla, Bob Shrum, Tommy Lahren, Stephanie Miller, Cenk Uecker, Reverend William Barber, Carter Page, Rick Wilson, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, and many others. You won't want to miss who's next. Listen to How the Heck weekly, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. This week, we really are excited to have Never Trump mastermind Bill Kristol on to discuss the future of the Republican Party, Trump and our democracy, and Evan Osnos, the author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now to give us insight into the president-elect and what's next for the administration. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. And this episode is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, United Harvest, and Paint Your Life. Please check out the link in show notes, and we thank them for their support of the podcast. And thank all of you for listening, and please tell your friends and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, we have two great guests, so let's. why don't we just set the table briefly? I think the Biden rollout was maybe the best I have ever seen. They're all high-quality, great upgrades. Averill Haynes, a respected intelligence professional at DNI to replace a political hack, John Ratcliffe. But I'll tell you what else really impressed me. There were conflicting objectives to surround himself with experienced people he's comfortable with and the need for new faces and diversity. He achieved both. Three of the eight people on that stage were women. Uh, uh, three of them were, uh, were minorities, and they all were incredible incredibly talented and capable, had a 43-year-old, a 76, and a 78-year-old. You just can't do any better, I think, than he did with that first rollout. Yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm not surprised, and and what really makes it so, just compared to what we had. I mean, it would be good under any circumstances. Don't get me wrong. But boy, when you you start to think about the people that are going to be running the government you know, January twenty first as opposed to January nineteenth, it, it 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 does. You know, it helps Evan pull me back off the ledge. I, I just hope it all works out for the country. I really do. Yeah, I do too. And my wife and I are both, I think, you know, pretty hard headed veteran journalists, and we were shedding a tear at Tony Blinken's emotional story of his stepfather being rescued in Nazi occupied Europe by a black GI. Uh, some. Uh, 75 uh, years ago. It really was, everything worked. And you're right, there's a lot of challenges ahead. There's a lot of uh, important appointments to still fill, Attorney General Defense, CIA, and so forth. Janet Yellen at Treasury is as good as it gets. There's never been a more qualified or more experienced, valuably experienced uh, Treasury Secretary appointee than Janet Yellen. So, you know, let's celebrate that. Well, that's a fact, okay? I don't know what kind of, I mean, I think she'll be a great Treasury Secretary, but she is the most qualified person to occupy that office ever. 
This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company known for its delicious mushroom coffee. All Four Sigmatic products use lab-tested, organic, vegan, fair trade, and gluten-free ingredients using single-origin Arabic coffee with lion's mane. I mean, this is really good stuff. Lion's-made mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. Now you're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? Does it, James? You know, it not only doesn't, I don't like, I grew up in, in we have like robust coffee in, in, in Louisiana, it was part of our culture, and I don't like truck stop coffee, that stuff where you can see your spoon at the bottom. So when I got this product, uh, I said, well, this is interesting, different, and I was expecting truck stop coffee, and I got anything but that. I mean, it has a, a, a really deep flavor profile in, in, in a way, and I, I, I tend to like more assertive coffees, and, and this is this is pretty assertive, and it's and it's really really good. I, I I can recommend it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I thought I wouldn't need coffee as much after this election, but I found out that I do, uh, and it's a good thing. Four Sigmatic coffee comes with a hundred percent money back guarantee. You'll love every sip, or you get your money back. When we've worked out an ex- exclusive. Carville Hunt offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee just for Politics War Room listeners. To claim this deal, to get up to 40% off plus free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles, you go to foursigmatic.com slash warroom. Now, this offer is only for Politics War Room listeners. You're a special group out there, and it's not available on their regular website. You'll save up to 40%. You get free shipping. So go right now to foursigmatic.com slash warroom. That's all one word. And fuel your productivity and creativity and get through these difficult times with some delicious mushroom coffee. That's foursigmatic.com slash warroom. Or look for the link in our show notes. Uh, hey, James, uh, we've cited Ron Brownstein and Tom Etzel as the best political reporters. They are. But there is no better or more versatile all-around journalist in America than Evan Osnos. I'm enlightened by every piece he's ever done in The New Yorker. He wrote a terrific book on China where he was based for five years. And he's just published Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. It's thin in length. It's very deep in insights. Evan, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Al. It's great to be with you. And I have to dispute your characterization of me, but let's carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your mom and dad wouldn't. Uh, (laughs) They're hopelessly biased. Onward. (laughs) I first covered Joe Biden uh, 48 years ago. I've talked to him a lot over the years. And I picked up your book and I thought, it is kind of thin, it's short. I learned an awful lot from that book. You capture him. You capture the contradiction. He's the most resilient politician person in our lifetime no one's come back from so many rejections there's also a vulnerability he hates the old uncle joe stereotype but he really is uh, he's not just your normal typical longtime politician is he no he isn't i think probably that's one of the reasons why i gravitated to him i mean look full disclosure the reason why i became so interested in him and uh, I got to say, it's a real thrill to be here on with you guys talking about a subject you know so well. Um, look, the reason I gravitated to him was that I came to Washington in 2013. I'd been overseas for a number of years. And to state the obvious, Joe Biden was not the hot, new, cool topic. That was not what political reporters were writing about. He was not the person everybody was chasing after. 
But I kind of thought this is a guy who's involved in foreign affairs, which are very interesting to me. And he is somebody who, when you sit down with him, as I immediately discovered, and as, as you've known for a lot longer, is the truth is that he can't help himself but be revealing about American political culture. And that's what I found fascinating. Not just the politics, who's there and who's at, but really sort of what makes this place tick? What are some of the, what's the undertow? And just to give you one example, he said to me in about 2014, when I was interviewing him at the White House, he said, you know, I'll tell you, I think the Democratic Party is uh, not paying enough attention to working people. This is before Bernie Sanders was really, uh, before the phenomenon had begun. It was certainly before Donald Trump was on the scene. And I didn't know enough to know what he was really telling me. And I didn't quote it. I didn't even quite get it. But he was actually sensing something happening in the electorate. And I'm, I, you know, I, I, you can, I get kicked with a mule once and I might forget it. But the second time I realize he's onto something, I'm going to go pay attention. So I, I went back and, and started talking to him again. Well, his authenticity comes through uh, for the, you know, overwhelmingly good, but some, some bad uh, too. In your many interviews with him here and also you traveled with him overseas. His initial appointments uh, won deserving praise, mostly people he's worked with. Uh, for years, but really uh, an upgrade, obviously, from where we are. But but even apart from that, really good. What do you think it tells us about his governance? I think you see a couple of things at the surface. Number one is that he believes fundamentally in the power of expertise, that there is such a thing as the accumulation of knowledge and scar tissue, and that the government is a complex operation that needs to be managed by skilled machinists. It's not that complicated of a concept, but it's positively radical right now. If you looked at every single person on that stage, they are able to walk into an office and immediately know how to make it run. Now, there are some risks associated with that in terms of sort of the the power of previous thinking, and we can talk about it. But the other thing that's really crucial here is if you looked at every person that he chose, each one of them, in a way, signifies some breakthrough for American history. All of us, obviously, are aware of the ways in which, you know, you've got Janet Yellen, who is the only person, male or female, who's ever held all three jobs, chairman of the Economic Advisors, chairman of the Federal Reserve, and now, of course, secretary of the Treasury, and on and on. So for him, you know, what he was saying this summer, when he said, I want a government that looks like the country, this is what he's talking about. And you're beginning to see the makings of that. That is not by any means going to pacify all of the pressure he'll receive from parts of his party. But as a starting point, it's hard to see how he could have chosen a group of people that send clearer messages about what he thinks are important. Yeah, I agree. Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, told you for the book that he's going to go fast and be bold. Uh, that's, that's admirable. I hope he can, but boy, he, he, it's a tough terrain to go fast and be bold. It is. And you know, this obviously matters tremendously what the composition of the Congress ultimately is. Um, he, he is a believer that let's assume for the moment that they don't get the Senate. And so he's dealing with a very constrained environment. What he has on his side is an awareness of what you can actually do from the executive branch, meaning you can go into the specific departments and you can set priorities around things like sustainability. You can make progress on climate, even if, in fact, the Congress is standing in your way. But let's let's also be honest here. We sometimes say, what can Joe Biden do to break through this 
glacial sense of impediment that he's standing in front of, there is a limited amount that he can do. He can set a tone. He can make a commitment. He can extend an open hand. But if he stands there with his hand open and nobody is there to shake it, they're not going to stay there very long. I mean, somebody else said to me for the book, somebody who's working very closely, and I can say is you know, part of this new, this new cabinet, uh, said that if that doesn't work, then plan B is scorched earth. And what that means is these are practiced political professionals, and if they have to, they'll move along the path to doing something on a more unilateral basis. But they don't mm-hmm. want to if they can avoid it. James. So, Evan, I would describe the Biden's campaign and – thus far in his, his transition and his cabinet appointments is being satisfyingly predictable. Mm-hmm. And the, the sort of thing, if, if, is Joe Biden have the potential to surprise us some kind of way? And if he does, what area would you expect it to be where you go, whoa, shit, I didn't see that coming. I mean, because again, it's hard to look at anything he's done and not say, well, I, that makes sense. And I'll probably do the same thing. It, where, think, where does he have potential for surprise? I think there are ways in which, as a core matter, one of the principles that I came to believe very much about him that is a surprise in and of itself is that the guy is a work in progress, which is something to say about a 78-year-old. Because you know, we, we sort of part of the reason I think why people underestimated him as a political candidate, as a presidential candidate, was they said, all right, he's a piece of the political furniture. We know what he is. Actually, no, he turned out to have a bit more of a, an adept sense of where the electorate was. It was a little more conservative than a lot of us in the press tended to describe it, I think. So where does he stand as surprise? If I had to pick the one place where I think he's likely to go further than even progressives would expect, it's on climate. Because he sees it in a way as the intersection of a bunch of issues that can satisfy different parts of the American public. It can be framed as an economic issue. It can be framed, in fact, as a moderate issue. You have to be careful about how you talk about it. But if he says, in effect, look, this is about laying the foundation for an economic future that's not going to disappear in 10 years, that's a language that has more of an appeal than if he says, I'm doing this on behalf of the moral obligation that we have to future generations. So there, there are ways in which he can use some of his you know, some of his um, unapologetic centrism as actually a wedge that can begin to open up space to do things that I think progressives would assume uh, he doesn't he doesn't actually want to move as fast on. But I, I will also say, James, I think you know the I, he is not going to wake up tomorrow and decide that Medicare for all is is the right thing at, right now. He's not going to wake up tomorrow and say I'm going for the full Green New Deal. I, I think one of the things about him that you discover is that very often when he says something, it's actually what he basically believes about it right now. Um, so that, that would be, that, that's where I see the capacity for surprise. So the, 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 I think the epic campaign book of all time was what it takes. Amen. And, that's for sure. And uh, what, so in, in a bit exhaustive in uh, uh, reporting on Biden and the people around him, and that was 1988 and, what is it, uh, 12 and 32 years later, how, how do we have a different person? If, if Richard Ben Kramer would, you know, would, would <laughs> come back, and what would he find different in Joe Biden? You know what I love about that portrait, and I actually I've talked to Biden about the portrait that Richard Ben Kramer 
gave us of him because you know as you remember it wasn't uniformly flattering i mean it was this very kind of bumptious guy who was right i would say if you were going to characterize joe biden in 1990 1988 uh, it was about 75% ambition and 25% content and what's changed in a big way and i think this is oh, this is a really important point is that it oh. has kind of the proportions have shifted you know, I think he is a guy who is fundamentally motivated by a, 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 a gr- almost a sense of gravity, not of personal vanity. I mean, this is he comes to this now to borrow a phrase of recent usage. This is a prayerful posture that he brings to the presidency because we are a people in trouble. I mean, this is a country flat on its back dealing with COVID, dealing with the economy, and all of the underlying structural reasons that even got that even got Trump elected in the first place. And Biden comes to this now with, with very little sense that this is about him. And I, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, I, I return fundamentally to the intersection of his personal life and his political life. And the fact that in 2015, when his son Bo died, it was a humbling of such a profound kind that what, what emerged from that was this man who basically believes that he's conducting a noble mission right now to try to help a country at a moment when somebody of his skills and attributes might be able to help. And I think that's a very different person than the one you would have encountered on that campaign trail in 87, 88. Albert? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with James. I love that book. I, I think the other message uh, from it was, or, or part of it, he was totally ill-prepared to be president in 1987, exactly. 88. I mean, you, you, you listen to the Pat Cadells and the Donald I mean, they, they, it, was all, it was all a gambit. It, it wasn't serious. I don't think anyone would argue uh, with the fact that he is prepared to be president now. How it goes, uh, we'll see. You, you had some wonderful little nuggets in the book. Uh, he, he has had a very intense dispute with Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, who is a darling of the foreign policy establishment, yeah. who wrote that Biden was wrong on everything. Uh, there's something deeper here, isn't there? I think Gates was wrong on more things than Biden. But, but explain the deeper animosity between the two. Yeah, it's, I think, an important piece of the history we don't often talk about. It actually, they go back a long way, as these things often do. And in fact, in 1991, then Senator Joe Biden voted against uh, Bob Gates as director of CIA because he felt that Gates, as a Kremlinologist, had failed to uh, adequately assess the survival of the Soviet Union. He'd gotten it wrong. So that is right there, the beginning of a long and very, in many ways, sort of intricate contest between these two about who, which one could accuse the other one of being wrong about bigger things. You then get to the, uh, during the Obama administration, <clears throat> when Bob Gates said about Joe Biden that he'd been wrong on every major foreign policy issue. I asked, I asked then Vice President Biden about it at the time, and he you know, practically rubbed his hands together, and he said, I can't wait to debate Bob Gates. He said he's a good and honorable man. And then he went off and said Bob Gates was wrong and he went down a long list of things. Fundamentally, uh, they, they are two people who've been practitioners, serious practitioners of hard problems for a very long time. And as somebody said to me when I sort of asked, I, I went to Richard Haas. I said, you have to adjudicate this matter for me. You know both of these guys. You know their, re- their records in detail. And what he said was, look, I would say this about both of them. That no, nobody bats a thousand when it comes to a career of this length, and nobody bats zero. You have your hits, all of us do, and we have our misses. Um, but there is, I think, that's an answer Joe, that protects Richard Haas. 
<laughs> well, in, in the in the case of Joe Biden, what I what I found so interesting about it was he didn't slink away and say, "Gosh, you know, Bob Gates has got me on." No, he said, "Look, I'm going to defend what I believe, and I'm going to also announce my regrets when I think I made a mistake." Yeah, he's made. I mean, I think he was wrong on both Gulf Wars. Uh, I would have voted for the first and against the second, but he's been right in a lot of things. Let me ask you: There's no one who who under no one in our business who understands China. Uh, as well as you, Evan, you were there for five years. You wrote a marvelous book. That's from day one. He faces this huge problem with the other superpower in the world. What do you expect from him in China? It's a it's a particularly interesting issue because it will force him and the folks around him to come to terms also with the way the world has changed since they left office. And uh, and you already hear them talking about that. Uh, when I talk to them about it, what I hear is a couple of important things. I think number one, look, they are they regard the Trump approach as chaotic, as improvisational when it came to China. They were trying this and trying that, but they fundamentally they will borrow some of that concept that the era in which we assumed this was a, a fundamentally cooperative relationship is over. It is something different. It is competitive. It is going to be at times confrontational. That doesn't mean you go about it in the same way that the that the Trump administration did. Uh, what you have, though, is I think you're likely to see that the Biden-China team believes that there are still areas on which we can cooperate, things like climate, for instance. We still want to push them on fundamental structural things in the relationship, like intellectual property theft, market access. So as a result, we don't have to go in there and immediately roll back elements of Trump's tariffs, even if we think they were misguided and expensive for Americans, which they are. Use that leverage, borrow a bit of that overhang, and see when and how you decide to roll them back in what you get in return. Um, But what I think you're you're not going to see from the Biden side is the pursuit of what Mike Pompeo has more or less uh, explicitly described as pursuing regime change from the Communist Party. That's not going to be an agenda item uh, for the Bidens. I, I, I think it's notable that the Chinese took a long time to send their congratulations and to Biden. I think that's because on some level they're grieving the end of the Trump era, because as a Chinese strategist in Beijing said to me at one point, uh, you know, they're in Chinese. They're describing they were describing this period as the period of strategic opportunity. And I said, well, how long does the period of strategic opportunity last? This period for China to sort of build out its role in the world and expand its footprint. And he said, well, it lasts as long as Donald Trump is in office. Yeah. Because Trump was doing so much uh, damage to undermine American credibility. So I, that I period put- is over. I quickly, I, I have a cousin who's been over there for 40 years in um, 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 uh, Asia, and uh, he told me before, and he said, of course they're cheering for Trump. And I said, why? He said, because even though they screwed up COVID-19, their position in the region and perhaps the world is stronger than it was four years ago. So why wouldn't they want to continue that? And I suppose yeah, there there's was an a, element of truth to that. I, I think that's absolutely right. There was a, they regard you know, what the Trump administration imposed on them, the, the sort of pressure and constraints. They thought of that as the local weather. That was manageable. The, the underlying issue, the main event from their perspective, the sort of climate change issue of politics and, and geopolitics is the 
the basic uh, balance of power between China and Russia, uh, between China and the United States. And in that, they thought that that Trump was doing violence to America's position. There was a Pew poll not too long ago that found that for the first time in American history, you have an American president with lower favorability and credibility around the world than the presidents of Russia or China. So from China's Amazing. perspective, that was a great asset. Right. James. So how from perspective of somebody like me, elderly person who's, you know, too passionate issues are probably <laughs> climate and inequality. And mm-hmm. also, you know, how we get along with other people in the world. Yeah. Give us some hope that we can unring this bell. Because sometimes I think <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I sit and I think about it and I say, you know, I feel pretty good about what's happening. And then sometimes I think about it and say, I don't know if we can, be, you know, just given what's happening in the Republican Party, given the how tight the congressional parties are, yeah, uh, tell me we're not doomed. <laughs> I hate to say I that. T- <laughs> no, I'm with you. Look, yeah, I, I tell have, me how we're not doomed. I have to tell you, James, I came out of this project with an unexpected sense of optimism. And that takes a lot for me to admit. I'm a catastrophist by nature. I generally see... I'm an optimist by nature. Okay, and I'm a catastrophist. Okay, so get me, talk me back off the ledge, all right? I'm about to jump, Alan. I'm about to jump. Talk me, help me. Exactly. So here we are. so good getting you two together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, this is unifying Americans, so two at a time. Exactly. I think what, you know what you have is a situation in which fundamentally you have a president-elect who believes in nothing grander than the following. He believes that the words of a president matter, that they can degrade us, they can drag us down in ways that we're not even conscious of every day. Just the background level of indignity and, uh, and, and, and sheer cruelty that emanates from the people at the top of society, that that matters. And at the same point, you can turn that, and it matters to say the alternative. I mean, I had this moment with, with, with Biden last summer where he said to me, look, I was wrong about something. I, I'd asked him how, what he learned from the, from the death of George Floyd and the protests that followed. And he said, the killing of George Floyd showed me that I'd been telling a kind of false parable all these years, where I grew <clears throat> up in Wilmington with Jim Crow laws, and eventually I became the vice president to the first uh, the first black president, and there you saw the arc of history bending towards justice, right? And what I discovered, of course, in the face of that man on the ground with the knee on his neck was that I was wrong and that it wasn't right. As he said, look, you can't extinguish hate. Hate hides and it waits under the rocks for somebody to give it oxygen and it comes roaring back. And what I what I took from that was that there's a kind of there is a humility about the possibility of what politics can do. It is not going to be the transcendent solution to all of our problems. That, I'm afraid, falls to all of us. It comes down to the news we read, the news we write, the news we generate. It comes down to where we live and how we send our kids to school. It comes down to all kinds of these very, really, the core elements of our society. But if you don't have somebody at the top who believes in the most modest notion of what it means to be an American, that there is the possibility of a multi-ethnic democracy and it's not worth chucking the notion out, then you can't do anything if you don't believe in that. And I, I came away with that sense that he's not the hippest, wokest, most fashionable guy in the world, 
but he believes in what a lot of Americans think this country can be, even people who don't agree with him on all the issues. And that's a starting point for something. That gives me reasons for hope. Well, I'm still on the ledge, but I'm not going to jump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but because the, the, the truth of the matter is, is the country in, can't get better unless it wants to get better. Yeah. And I'm not sure, and I, I know Biden and the people around him want the country to get better. I, I just hope that the country wants to get better someplace. I, I will say I had a, a lot of interviews over the course of the last year with young people at various places on the political spectrum, and the experience was really thrilling. I mean, I'm 43 years old. I, I, I'm kind of grieving for the fact that I no longer get to qualify as anything like a young person. And the reality is, though, I came away with a sense that they were exhausted and embittered by the Trump era because it was so degrading for so many people. And I do think that they look at it and they want something better. I, I you know, I, I do subscribe a little bit to what Jim Clyburn said about politics, you know, he says, we swing from the extremes. We go from one extreme to the other all the time, but it means we pass through the center twice as often as we linger at the extremes. And I find something encouraging about the belief of young Americans that the possibility to be inclusive, to, to, to basically look out for people who are vulnerable, that's not a radical notion for them. Well, to, to yeah. buttress your point, I'll give you some hope that the you shared this election was bigger than people thought. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and yeah. uh, the, the, the first time surge voters, you know, particularly on the, the some interesting statistics, are uh, going to be coming out of Georgia on that. Uh, mm. So uh, there's some evidence that, yeah, A, young people traditionally vote much lower proportion to older people, but it, it did. There, there was some improvement kind of mm -hmm. across the board there. So that's something to, to be optimistic right. we're, we're, about. We're, we're going to get him off that ledge, Evan. You know, uh, I, I think it said <laughs> accurately that probably he faces the greatest challenge since any president, perhaps, since Franklin Roosevelt. And, and I wasn't around then, I want to point out, but it was, I think, Justice Holmes who described Roosevelt as having a second-class intellect and a first-class temperament. Boy, we'll take that. I mean, mm -hmm. that, you know, if, if we can have that first-class temperament, that matters yeah. more than anything. And I think Joe Biden has that. So that's that's reason for hope. Evan Osnos, there are a lot of reasons that you are America's great journalist, this generation's Halber Stammer, David Mariners. But the primary reason, the primary reason is your mother and father. And I just <laughs> here, here. And I <laughs> want to thank you. You have been a great guest, and I hope we can look forward to talking to you throughout the Biden administration. Please and I can't wait to tell back. I can't wait to tell George Pack and Jane Murray how Al Hunt said that you're his, his favorite oh. journalist at the New Yorker. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll dispute him every day he does it, but I'm grateful for it. Thanks to Thanks, you guys. James. All right. Yeah. Take care, Thank Evan. You. Thank you. See you guys. Let's talk about meat, and I don't mean Trump steaks. You know, this whistle we remember when Where's the Beef in the 1984 campaign? Yeah. You, you yeah. know? Which is kind of going to clear up. So let, let's talk meat here. What well, James, we I have about? not been a big meat eater. Honestly, my wife will attest to this. We got some United Harvest beef, and I, I'm, I'm back to being a beef eater sometimes at least. It is new meat delivery company founded by ranchers who give you their best cuts of American beef. Uh, it's it's 
everything you want, uh, lamb, steaks, beef. United Harvest works directly with sustainable North American family farms that uphold the highest standards of quality in animal care, which my daughter cares a lot about, which includes no hormones, GMOs, or unnecessary antibiotics. And it's cut by their expert butcher in Oregon. I don't know if it's East or West Oregon, but it's not on the factory uh, floor. And wow, you can taste the difference. You really can. It's, it's better than the big supply chains and sold directly to you at surprisingly good prices. You know, I am a beef eater. I like beef. This stuff doesn't have all the hormones. It's all the stuff that, in our way of life, that we add to the meat that makes it less healthy. And these people really don't do that. And I, I think it, 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 it doesn't matter how much meat you eat, but it's the kind to eat your meat and meat you eat and what it's been treated with. And this stuff is, is, is more like Argentina, where it does a lot less intervention, if you will. You know, they got a well-marbled ribeye steak, which is, you know, one of my favorite cuts. They got lamb chops and, and that Wago top sirloin, which is actually top sirloin is, is, is one of the better cuts of meat for you. And, and they're able to do even some of what we would call lesser cuts in a way that makes them much more tasty than you normally get in the supermarket beef. Well, you're right. There's no imported meat, just premium cuts of perfect meat delivered overnight. So here's what you do. You go to unitedharvest.com. That's unitedharvest.com. And enter the promo code WARROOM. It's all one word. To get 20% off site-wide with your order of $50 or more. That's unitedharvest.com. And use that promo code WARROOM. And check out or look for the link in our show notes. If you value quality, flavor, and convenience, I really mean this. Check out unitedharvest.com. Be sure to use that promo code WARROOM to save 20% off your order of $50 or or more. You know, James, Bill Crystal has been in the forefront of Republican ideas and politics for more than three decades, a practical conservative intellectualism inherited from his parents. But as a, a captain of the Never Trump movement, uh, he has played a, a dramatically and I think very important role over the last year. Uh, Bill, nothing that Trump does surprises us. It's over. We don't, I don't even know if we care much what he says or doesn't say. But what have the last couple of weeks told us about other Republicans? And I would accept uh, Mitt Romney and the Georgia Secretary of State. Yeah, nothing Trump has done should have uh, surprised us. That's why we were never Trump, you know. I love some of the people who are now discovering that, my God, Trump's yeah, really exactly. bad, you know. He doesn't obey democratic norms. He doesn't respect the public. He doesn't respect our institutions. Uh, the other Republicans have been as bad as I expected. Uh, I was talking with a friend earlier who was also never Trump. It was more hopeful about the future of the Republican Party. There's a spectrum of views, I would say, among uh, Republicans, ex-Republicans on that. He's on the sort of, you know, they could recover after Trump and come back, and they've been cowardly, but, you know, they, they'll, they'll be different looking ahead. And he was despondent. I mean, the last two weeks, I think, have strengthened the point of view that this party is deeply corrupted by Trump. Maybe it was already corrupt. Uh, and it's going to take a long time for it to recover. Yeah, I, you you could see it in some of the reactions uh, this week. And I think I, I I think John McCain is more needed than ever. I, I think he would have been in the forefront. He would have been right there with Romney and the Georgia Secretary of State. His protege, of course, was Lindsey Graham. What happened to Lindsey Graham, Bill? 
I mean, I don't know. One problem is, you know, people ask me about these Republicans. I haven't spoken to them honestly in a year or two. I can't really stand to. And, you know, other people, I, I say this earnestly and honestly, I mean, other people really should work on saving the Republican Party because it's, it would be good for the country to have two respectable and serious and decent political parties. I, I'm so disgusted, really, by everyone's behavior, including Lindsey Graham, for the last year or two that, you know, in the old days, you'd get invited up to the, James has done this a million times, to the Hill and speak with senators or congressmen, you know, a small room, a breakfast, a large group, maybe the whole retreat. I, I, the thought of it, someone said to me, I hope you get back up there and you can t- you know, talk some sense into those guys. And I said to my friend, you know what? I think I, I just wouldn't go. I, I just couldn't stand there and be cordial to Lindsey Graham or Kevin McCarthy or or uh, Ted Cruz or even Marco Rubio, whom I knew once knew pretty well. And I don't want to get in some stupid fight. So I'll just let other people work on the Republican Party. And I think I'll just be an independent for the next little while. And honestly, the most important thing for the country is that Joe Biden can be a successful president. We're all Americans. We're in a crisis. It would be very bad for the country, obviously, in a practical sense, but I would say in a political in the broad sense of political sense, if if the Biden presidency kind of just crashes down, it'll strengthen extremists on all sides. So I feel like whatever little I can do to help uh, the Biden presidency, build some support, make some suggestions for ways they could do things uh, better is probably the best thing I can do for the well, next Well, Bill, we're going to talk about the Biden pr- uh, presidency in just a minute. But just one more before I turn it over to James. Uh, Trump's got eight more weeks. Uh, what are your fears? Certainly there'll be pardons. That's not terrible, I guess. I mean, a lot of people will get out of things they deserve. Um, I'm still worried about the Defense Department, where he's put real lunatics in, in charge. Well, Miller himself is kind of a, a nothing, but uh, the, the people around him are pretty crazy. I hope nothing rash or foolish gets done. Uh, you know, he controls the executive branch of the federal government, and that's dangerous. Presidents have a lot of power. I, I really hope he just plays golf for the next eight weeks and sulks. He doesn't have to be gracious. He doesn't have to have a nice concession speech. Just don't do any more damage to the country. But having said that, we do have this terrible pandemic, which he's doing nothing about. It, it seems like, you know, Dr. Fauci and others are able to make recommendations without him, but we're not going to have any real aggressive polit- federal action until Biden takes over in terms of masks. Luckily, the, the vaccine hopefully is, is you know, will be developed and there'll be good plans to distribute that. So the other thing I would say is we need to have a, some congressional action on an economic recovery a, a package, a pandemic package, which would include some medical stuff, PPE and so forth, but also a lot of economic aid. And Trump's doing nothing. I really hope there that McConnell and Pelosi can just say we need to do something and let's just cut the split the difference and get something passed here to help the Biden <clears throat> to help the country above all and also so Biden doesn't inherit things that are really yeah it's a lot better for him if they get something done now and then maybe you have to come back uh, in February so James Carville that's so Bill and of course my world is Georgia all the time and there seems to be a, you know I think a pretty substantial the Republicans you know the hardcore Trump people are like we're gonna write Trump in or we don't care about Kelly Loeffler or, or, or David Perdue or anything. Do you think that that's a real issue that they're faced with, and is there any way that this can be exploited uh, to 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 some effect? Yeah, I think it can be. I think there's genuine, you know, mixed messages in Trump world, and enough of them could be crazy and and decide, uh, create, you know, to believe that Trump was robbed and the Republicans didn't stand with Trump, but we're going to punish the Republicans, and it would just take a point or two. 
So I, frankly, I think it's worth it to, to let them spread that message and maybe even amplify it a little bit by if Democrats want to do that or people like, like me want to do that. You were right, James, on Georgia. I mean, we were on TV together maybe in September, and I think you were bullish already on Georgia and were trying to, you know, both worried about the election integrity there, but, but trying to get uh, Democrats to focus mm-hmm. on that. And that yeah. state came true. And I think it's less, I don't know what you think, James, I think it's less obvious that Republicans should be favored there yeah. by much. I mean, that's a pretty, that, that's kind of a toss up. Yeah, I, 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 I do. And I don't know which way I, I what I would, did tell people, whatever the odd that we could pick up one or two of those seats was on November the 4th, they've gotten better now. All right. Mm-hmm. They just, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 yeah. the Democrats are, are, are totally unified. There's no carp in anything between the Stacey Abrams people and the, you know, the, the, this kind of stuff. And they do have some pretty, pretty, Rush Limbaugh's calling on them to write Trump's name in. And, yeah. you know, the, the amazing thing in Georgia was just how, how big the, the right, right rural turnout was and still able to win. And I, I do think that our conversation on Morning Joe about, I don't know, you can argue causation or correlation, but you can't argue correlation. We talked about it, and it got a pretty pretty good bit of publicity, and the election went off pretty pretty smoothly. Uh, I mean, I didn't see any complaints about people having to yeah, worry. Yeah, we were all worried. And you, so, I don't know. On the corporate side. Right. So, it, I don't know if it did any good. Secretary of State, yeah, a lot of That's right. We, we lived together. Bad. I remember we called on the corporate type. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. but and, and now of you course know, it's just they, getting beat up by all the Republicans. And he got beat up during the primaries, apparently for pretty good reason. But he did, he did run and conduct by what I haven't heard any complaints on the Democratic side about you know the election being unfair, to, the voting lines were too long, and you know Fulton and too short, and other places. I think everybody felt like they had a fair shot. You know. Yeah, I mean, one Republican talking point, obviously, is you know if you're a centrist. You want a Republican Senate to check Biden. But the truth is, given the way Republican senators are talking in the last few days, they're not going to constructively work to have compromises with Biden. They're just going to, it looks like they're just going to block everything. And that's not healthy for the country. A 50-50 Democrat, I've talked myself into this, but I really do believe it. A 50-50 Democratic Senate would still not be that left wing. I mean, John Hickenlooper and Kirsten Sinema and and Joe Manchin, and for that matter, the new senators from Georgia, especially, I mean, Ossoff are going to be there. They're not going to be raving socialists or left-wingers. So I actually think Democrats controlling the floor, but with still the necessity of of holding their conference and getting a few Republican votes, perhaps, would be a pretty good outcome, actually, for the country. It would help Biden govern successfully, but not, I think, to the left for the first year. Well, Bill, I I think you're right. Also, don't forget the House. I mean, Nancy Pelosi doesn't have much of a margin. Uh, uh, She's not going to... No. That is true. I mean, that's been so right. undercover, totally. don't you think? I mean, it's hard to run the House with like what you're going to have 223 Democrats or something. That's that's going to be tricky. So that, yeah, no. It, it what I I just what what the what, what people the Democrats need to do is settle on like a 2018 agenda, which would be more liberal than than, than you can imagine. But but you know stuff like prescription drug costs, expanding you know healthcare coverage. You know, a, a lot of infrastructure or the emphasis on sustainability and resiliency uh, even can bring up the minimum wage. I mean, if, there's a, if they don't coalesce around a, a kind of economic, I don't say populist is overused word, 
but but that kind of message like they did in 2018 i think i, I don't i don't think you're necessarily doomed to go in 20 lose in 2022 unless they go back to this defund the police idiocy uh but i i i think they might have learned it. i'm hopeful that they learned a lesson Hey James, before we get to 2022, let me ask Bill what he thought of the of the early uh, Biden appointments, the rollout the other day of the national security sure. uh, and others. What was your general view, Bill? I mean, I know most of those people a little just from being around Washington. I have a high regard for really for all of them. I've got to say for the ones I know and the ones I know of by reputation, and I do think it makes the Republicans. If the Republicans who've been screaming and yelling that Biden was just a cover for socialism and uh, wokeness and for, you know, capitulation across the board and foreign policy and so forth. Uh, I don't know if those people have any shame or, or, or ability to examine themselves, but maybe they should admit that this is a pretty moderate administration. Uh, and uh, at least in foreign and national security, and I would say Janet Yellen at Treasury too, for that matter, and most of the other day, and Ron Klain in the White House, and most of the White House appointments. So yeah, no, I think it's encouraging. I, you know, he'll obviously have a balancing act, and he'll be pretty good at that, I think. And there'll be some things someone like me won't like, but the the degree to which I, one thing I'm unnerved by, maybe I shouldn't be. It's just silly of me, but the degree to which, again, everyone is on the Republican side. It's just started off in opposition. It's just like one person is announced. They dig up something they didn't like, he said, seven years ago. And it's, can you believe this guy's going to be Secretary of State or Janet Yellen's going to be Secretary of Treasury? It's really juvenile. And it's not the way it used to be, I think. There was always some sniping in the transition and on the initial appointments. But usually you try to at least give the new president a chance, You, especially if you're in a crisis and a pandemic and in a recession, you sort of hope you'll succeed at least in, in getting the country stabilized again before you get back to the normal political fights. But there's been so little of that, so little. I'm not even, I mean, people could say graciousness, but that's even too highfalutin a way to put it, just kind of responsibility in the tone that most Republicans, with a few exceptions, the tone that most Republicans have taken. It really shows how Trumpified the party is at its sort of sensibility almost not just in its Yeah, it used to be you Democrats or Republicans would pick out one nominee and say, wait a minute, that's a step too far, and the rest yeah. would all be confirmed. I mean, for whatever the reason of picking out the one. This time, I thought Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and Tom Cotton had their press releases written ahead of time, and they just had to wait to fill in the names in the particular charge. One said the foreign policy team was a bunch of warmongers. One said they were China huggers. One said they were corporatists. I mean, it really was all, it, it really was, it was terribly unattractive. Yeah. Yeah, I- I thought the kind of star of all the appointments, you would expect me to say this, but I actually believe it is the new UN ambassador. You know, I thought she Mm -hmm. came across as, you know, a a really good story and by, from what I understand, was a highly competent diplomat. Uh, You know, uh, grew up in Baker, Louisiana, which is a small town right north of Baton Rouge, you know, kind of went to LSU and I think uh, did did graduate work at the University of Wisconsin. But she was a... It was kind of refreshing, I thought. But yeah, I, they, we go forward here, and it's obvious that Trump is going to con- just continue to, to dominate the Republican Party. And I, I, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, I, I did a podcast with Stu Stevens, uh, Stuart, and I gave him a kind of what an optimistic scenario for the future of the party, and he, he literally like bit my head off. 
<laughs> okay, it's like, I was like, look, I was just trying to be, you know, I was like, you know, well, I'd given a speech and just trying to say something complimentary. Oh, don't worry, it'll be better, you know, and <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I gather you, Stu's pessimism is pretty much in line with yours. You know, I, mostly, I mean, I'm, I'm open-minded about it in the sense that we just haven't had a president like Trump, we, and therefore we haven't had an acquiescence by a party to a president like Trump. And therefore, we don't really know what things are like post a Trump presidency. And I have friends who are thoughtful, like our friend Mike Murphy, uh, I think, has the general view that people like me and Stuart are overstating the continued captivity of the party to Trump. That once he's no longer president, it starts to fade. He doesn't have the White House. He doesn't have Air Force One. The rallies in March or in May or in September start to look a little bit like, you know, the ex-president trying to get a crowd somewhere and it's kind of boring and he's at Mar-a-Lago and, you know, meanwhile, what's really happening in Washington? That's where the real fights are and let's see what's happening in some policy, you know, some fight between Biden and uh, some Republicans or among Democrats and so forth. So he, I think Mike has the view, and I'm sympathetic to this some of the time, that Maybe Trump sort of fades away and it was so much a cult of personality and the rest of the family isn't really up to doing anything. And I still think the Trumpism is, is there, but maybe it's much less strong and maybe it becomes, you know, like Sarah Palin was two or three years after she ran or Joe McCarthy was a year or two after he was censured and people do fade away. George Wallace, you know, sort of repudiated, I mean, he's different, he repudiated his past, but he wasn't the same thing after he ran and lost for president. So I don't know, may, maybe you can argue, you certainly can argue that or hope that Trump himself isn't as important, but I've got to say just the degree to which the base, a good chunk of the base, enough of the base, unfortunately, is just animated by Trump's resentments and, uh, and and like that style of politics and just hate the left. I mean, the, the and I know people who are intelligent and college educated. Um, there was a good piece recently by someone who looked at a poll. I don't know if you saw this, James or Al, that suggested that the college educated Trump supporters, the white college educated Trump supporters, were actually more driven by cultural resentment, cultural hatred of liberal elites than the working class supporters. A lot of the working class supporters were just, look, I don't know, I don't really trust the Democrats, you know, and they want to defund the police, so I'm for Trump. It was sort of these college-educated ones or somewhat college-educated ones who had a more kind of complicated set of grievances who were into the conspiracy yeah. theories, you know? I mean, it, that that struck me as, that resonated a little bit with me just based on the people I know. And But that also suggests that it's a little more embedded than, it's going to be hard yeah, to get rid the, of Because the legacy of Trumpism is not a well-defined ideology uh, of any sort. People talk about nationalism, but what it really is, it's 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 Trump. It's about Trump. It's about hate. Uh, it's about negativity and the bad guys. I mean, there really is no Trump doctrine as you um, as there was a Reagan or a Goldwater uh, doctrine or McGovern doctrine. I mean, I, I, how much of it is race, though? How much right. of it is ethnicity? I mean, I'd be curious. Right. James closer a lot of this than I am. I what, you, what do you I think? I think that you you said something and you hit on something. That a lot of it is just resentment, and, and like you know that that the culture and, and, and the cultural smugness that the left can can come across with, and you know some of it is racism, some of it is just that no matter what you do, they're going to criticize and they're going to do whatever. But you know, when I, I listen to these people, and a lot of them do come across as really smug, and and at some point. 
that the Democrats are going to have to say, are, they, are these left-wing academics, are, are they worth the trouble? Because I, I, cancel culture is a real thing. It's a, re, it's a, real, it's a yeah. real thing. Yeah, sure is. You know, this guy that worked for Civis that, that resent out a piece of academic research that was done by African-American <laughs> professor at Princeton, and they had to run him off. I just, I just did a Zoom call. It was a brilliant guy. His name was David Shore. But, but some, of, some of this stuff is, is, is irritating, you know, to a lot of people, I think. And, it, it, you know, Tucker Carlson, of course, he, he skillfully seizes on it. And they just keep feeding that. But, but some of the, the, the resentment toward, I'm, I consider myself a liberal, by the way, but toward, toward this kind of cultural, you know, left is grounded in, in, in something real, I think. And we've we got to be aware of that. That's my. How much do you think, James, that the Democrats have, you know, are like had a wake up call with their underperformance down ballot? This year, that was pretty shocking to lose House seats and lose state legislative seats. If if the number of Democrats that call me, and I'm talking about in the Congress, you know, about these goddamn people are crazy. It, it, you would you would you would be surprised. <laughs> I, I you would really be surprised. But there's there's a real. If you just look at what Clyburn has said publicly, forget what he's telling people privately. I mean, he was basically said we we can't go down this road. And and that, and that is mm-hmm. a reflection of a lot of the Congressional Black Caucus. I promise you that that this whole defund the police movement does. And, but I mean, the whole Latinx. Uh, I was just on a Zoom with Richie Torrey. He said, "I ain't never heard it by my district use the term Latinx." And we just too too mm-hmm. we can be too smug, and somebody needs to you know we got the smug smile slapped off our face. So hopefully we learn a lesson. That's all I can say. Well, well, you know that's true, and of course the worry, uh, and this is what uh, I think Nancy Pelosi thinks about every day. If she only has a five or six vote margin, <laughs> uh, it means those people uh, uh, have leverage if they want to use it, and they won't use it for constructive purposes. And uh, that'll be that'll be the real test. I had someone tell me the other day who was by any definition a real house liberal that he worried uh, about something as small as Cedric Richmond going to the White House before the vote for speaker. I said, what are you talking about? He said there will be, uh, you know, a half dozen or so of of the, the, the woke, the squad who will threaten to withhold their vote for Pelosi unless they get A, B or C. Bill, that's a prescription for disaster. Yeah, I mean, Biden has a tough, you know, a tricky path ahead. I mean, successful presidents have navigated it. James was there when Bill Clinton did in 93, 94. He had some rough times in 94, but then came back strong. And uh, and other FDR, of course, did a lot of this digging and zagging. Uh, now, could could there be some Republicans who could come over and vote for some things? I do think so. If he, had, if he has a coronavirus relief bill, is every Republican House member going to vote against that? I just can't believe it. So give up right. some on the left, maybe, and get some some of the twenty or thirty or forty reasonable House Republicans, if there are many. But that's what I just can't tell. I mean, how much of the incredible lockstep character of the House and Senate Republicans was kind of a, a Trump specific phenomenon, a Trump presidency specific phenomenon? Because he had the presidency, which had a lot of clout, which he used to intimidate them and terrorize them. And how much of it starts to dissipate when he's no longer in the White House? And fine, you get yelled at a little bit in your town meeting, but I mean, you know, you don't 
you, you think you might be able to survive in a way that you couldn't when Trump was after you? Or does it not dissipate much at all and Trump's still tweeting and and the base is the base and these guys just are terrified? I, I think that's a, I think one way I put it is I think the future of each of both parties are, is a big question. It's a very unusual time in American politics. The future of the Republican Party is totally, of course, up in the air. But the way in which the Democratic Party works out its its right tensions, now. its its uh, its uh, arguments and quarrels is also, you know, very yeah, much over. It is, and I think Biden has threaded it very well. But <laughs> we're talking about three weeks, uh, so there's yeah. a long, long time to go, and so, uh, he before- will face lots of pressures and counter pressures but uh you, you know i i actually think it, it is an advantage for him in some ways this will sound strange bill the fact that he doesn't have a bigger majority you know you'd take it of course any president would take it but uh i think his instincts are more moderate than the pressures that would be brought upon him and i think now it's very easy to say fine where are the votes uh you know we're going to do xyz because that's the only way we can get anything done but it'll evolve so just before we go bill i just because You've been a member of the Republican Party and in solid standing for most of your life, and you're not a Democrat. But the Democratic Party is at its core an amalgamation of a coalition, all right? And it's driven more by trying to keep the coalition intact as, as, as anything else. And I just think that the coalition is, you know, can you keep the far left within the coalition? And I don't know that you can without causing irreparable damage to the to the rest of the people in the coalition, i.e., African Americans, you know, educated suburban women, uh, you know, public employee unions, whatever you want to go through is you know part of the Democratic coalition. And it's going to be some skillful, uh, hopefully, some skillful navigating here coming coming forward. But that's kind of my view from. 10,000 feet. Final thoughts, Bill Crystal. I hope that uh, Joe Biden consults with James Carville on how to do that skillful navigation. And I mean, I honestly wish him well and, you know, in my very minor way, would like to do whatever I can to help just because I think it's really important for the country here to get the pandemic under control, get the economy going again. Let's at least get back to a situation in 2022 where we can resume our normal, our normal debate, stabilize for uh, this, uh, and there's a big reform agenda that should, you know, how to hold presidents accountable for not letting them break the law. Just a ton of things that, you know, I think if he if he can prioritize those in his agenda, the economic agenda and the kind of mainstream political reform agenda, I hope he, he can get some Republican support. And uh, he really should. And if he doesn't, that will tell us a lot about the, the future of the Republican Party. Hey, Bill Crystal, uh, you, we thought you'd be a great guest. You know what? You were even better. And we look forward to your contributions uh, and involvement uh, in the times ahead. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Al. James, stay well. Really good. Re- re- really good. Thank good. you so much. Thank you. Hey, James, the holidays are coming up fast. And if you're looking for a special gift for someone, one that's truly unique and personal, I've got a great idea for you. At PaintYourLife.com, you can have an original painting made by a world-class artist done by hand from any photo at an affordable price. Wait a minute. Let me, let me just digest this for a second. You can send them a, a photo of you or you and your family or you and your dog or you and w- w- whatever you got, and they're going to have an artist send it back to you at an affordable price. I mean, I only thought like multi 
billionaires had these, you know, portraits done that been, you'd, you'd paint from that. So th- this, this is something I'm going to try. I'm really going to try this shit. This, this looks good. With a three-year-old grandson turned three this week and a new puppy, I think I've got a Christmas present now. Paint Your Life can even combine photos into one painting. Ordering a custom-made hand-painting portrait takes less than five minutes. It's quick. It's easy. You'll get your hand-painted portrait in about three weeks. So I guess if I'm going to do it for Christmas, I better do it pretty soon, James. And if you want to give a truly meaningful gift, you got to try PaintYourLife.com. Yeah, this is re- this is really great service. It can be almost impossibly hard to get my family to sit still for a picture, even we are rarely in the same state, and sometimes even advising the same party about it. It, but it did. This sounds. This this sounds too good to be true. So I'm gonna be. You know. This this is gonna. I think the thing's gonna be amazing. I really do. Yeah. With paint your life, they can get us all in there, even the animals. Best part, I can even send them a picture so I don't have to do my hair. <laughs> okay. J- J- James, that's going to be a challenge for him. <laughs> it yeah. really is. Yeah. At paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off, free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word politics to 6400 Zero zero six four zero zero zero. That's sixty four thousand. That's politics to sixty four thousand, and text politics to sixty four thousand. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most, or look for the number in our show notes. Hey James, we got some good questions this week. They are coming in from all over the world and all over America. I want to start with Terry from Palmetto, Florida. She says. Florida politics are frightening. They've elected Rick Scott, despite the fact he's chairman of a group that's indicted for Medicare fraud. Where can we find Democratic candidates who are charismatic and dynamic enough to compete in this, what will be, I guess, the third largest state? Why Florida? Why is it such a wasteland? Well, first of all, a couple of things. Remember about Florida. They passed the course of the legislature completely. They didn't implement it. By healthy margin, the idea of giving convict, convicted felons that served their time the right to vote. All right, I, I was surprised. And, and the second thing is, as Joe Biden was getting swamped in Florida, the minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage, passed with 60% of the vote. So, and I'm, I'm always reluctant to say, well, maybe we have a messaging problem or something. Fun. Maybe we do. Maybe there's something wrong with our presentation in Florida or our inability to, that the coalition that it takes to win in Florida is somewhat different coalition it takes to win in the United States. I don't know. Uh, I know Bill Nelson lost by 10,000 votes. Uh, this was a, a, you know, Miami-Dade was really the, the center of the disappointment in 2020. I think if you look at the rest of the state, it, it performed but pretty good. Yeah. So I, I I think that Florida Democrats are, are, are going to have to come to some fundamental grips about who they are and what they represent, what candidates they, they, they put forward. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, maybe a messenger probably is a candidate problem, too. They haven't had very, very good candidates, that's for sure. Right. Uh, in, in, and, uh, you know, the, it, we're going to go up to Montreal now. And Rick says, what are the odds, or ask, what are the odds the new administration tried to catch Trump or Kushner in a type of sting operation? 
if, it, if it's as sensitive and dire as you think, wouldn't this be a great way of mitigating the threat? I don't think the Biden administration is going to prosecute Trump or anybody around him, uh, even though he's going to pardon himself and we'll see if that's moot or not. So, so, so I'm really not spending much time at that. But where you want to look is Manhattan. You want to look at Cyrus Vance. That Manhattan DA's case is a very serious criminal case if it is brought. And, and I think it's almost certainly they're going to get those records. And uh, it may be a little bit harder to prove in state court. And if you think that Donald Trump was a totally honest but tough businessman, then he probably didn't have any troubles. If you think, however, he wasn't, then I think he could be, as uh, George H.W. Bush once said, in deep doo-doo. Yeah, I, I think uh, that there are so many investigations that are going on. Steve Bannon by the Southern District, a, a likely massive and supposedly investigation of Brad Parcell going on. And I don't know how Jared uh, uh, is going to stay out of that. And, you know, I think I think that this is a, a lot, a lot of things that are being looked at. And unless you believe that Jared is a very honest person and went by the book with all the campaign spending and everything else, that, that gonna be they're gonna have to go to great trouble to protect him. The Biden administration will. Well, they are, but but James, uh, he's going. He, right. James, he's going to pardon him. I mean, Trump's going to pardon him, and he has the power to do that. I don't. I think it's dubious he, he has know, the power to pardon himself, but he has the power to pardon Steve Bannon. He, I don't know if he will. He's the he pardon, can, he, he the power can, to pardon Jared Kushner. He can, but. The, the, the other people that are caught up in that investigation could be, you know, we'll see. But he'd be yeah. right. Paul's not going to do any yeah. good. I, th I think you're correct. The, the action is really coming from from New York and the, the attorney general and, the, and particularly the, the Manhattan DA. Yeah, totally. Uh, Daryl from San Francisco says that Mr. Carville, he's very respectful. Mr. I like that, Daryl. Yeah, 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 Mr. Mr. Carville. I, I wish you'd put an Esquire after that. Right. But anyway, said you talked last episode about the diversity of the Democratic Party prohibiting them from having a unifying issue. I'm not sure that's exactly what you said. But anyway, he asked, you know, why not mandatory choice voting? I guess ranked choice voting in a national holiday for elections. I would prefer to have the 28th Amendment to say that there's nothing in this Constitution prohibits Congress from regulating the money, the campaign money. All right. If I, I just, I, if there was anything that could be unifying to, to every part of the Democratic coalition, I think it would be the corruption and money in politics message. And I think that you can use that from the courthouse to the state house to the White House to be. You know, yep, old-fashioned yep, about it, but I think I think that the unifying issue for the party has got to be anti-corruption, and I, I, and I think when the one of the things that, if not the investigations of Trump, uh, the stuff that they're going to find, the, the utter staggering, breathtaking corruption that took place in this administration, just because you you don't want to, you don't want the Attorney General to go after Trump, or he can't because of pardons, that that the court. But this spider web goes really deep and it goes in everywhere in this administration and it has to be exposed and it has to be brought up and it has to be dealt with. Yeah, you're right. And it is all the more incumbent upon Biden to issue the toughest, the toughest ethics rules of all times. I don't want to be reading pieces in six months about how this former Democratic official is making a fortune representing Bahrain or representing uh, general dynamics or something because of his or her connections to the Biden administration. I mean, some of that always goes on, but they really, really have to be tough. And they got to be tough. They got to be totally transparent. 
Right. And, they got, and they got to be really tough on the corruption in, the, in, in this administration. And now God knows how deep it is, right. but it, 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 can't, it can't be ignored. This People is a question from Carl, James, because I'm going to answer because it's easy. He said, given narrowly the divided Senate, regardless of what happens in Georgia, what should be the basis? What should the Democrats frame for the 2022 midterms in an advantageous way? I think there is a one-word answer, 2018. I, 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 I second, heartily second the motion. And, and it is passed without objection. Absolutely correct. And no one's ever called me Mr. Hunt, but anyway, right. Norman well, if... <laughs> Norman from Brooklyn uh, says, how appropriate is Pompey's visit giving U.S. support to Israeli settlements on the West Bank? Is he doing this for Trump or doing this for himself and the evangelical uh, support for his own candidacy down the road? Well, I like the fact you called him Pompey because that's about what his tenure at the State Department <laughs> reminds me of is Pompey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, this guy, what I don't understand is that he, he was, the brigade finished first in his class at West Point. He's a well-educated human being. I, 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 and you just look at these people and say, you don't really believe this shit, do you? And, and it's he and his wife, they, they wanted to be like social, they were setting these dinners up at, at the State Department that people found wildly inappropriate where he was bringing in all these kind of federal society people and everything i i mean and i'd like to know the level of corruption that you know that he he aided and abetted i really would and I, James, I i'll just hope- tell you one story that about first in his class a, a great admirer of eisenhower's one time said eisenhower graduated in the top third of his class the middle third of his class at west point he was on the football team for a while in student government. He said there was the all-around experience that you really want to look for in a president. And then he paused and said, MacArthur was first in his class at West Point. That, he rested Right. I, I, again, I, 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 MacArthur was, you know, complicated. I think history is less, I would say, certainly less kind to him than kind. But there were things that MacArthur did. You know, he was a very brave soldier in World War One. He's, you know, he... he at the middle of did a good job in Japan, but but most you know, he like to lost yeah. the whole war. The career was really stupid. But at, at any rate, you're right. It doesn't confer to be first in your class at Harvard Law School. Stuff, but you can't be stupid, right? right. You, you just can't. You, you, the, 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 the competition is 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 really great, and, and the, the coursework is is that's not an easy place to do well. And no, it's not. And it, it's, but it was, it was, that was the case when he was there. And it's really the case today. I mean, the uh, U.S. Naval Academy and the U.S. Military Academy are really top, top rate uh, academic institutions. Yeah. Um, damn right. He, John from Vancouver, Washington, he's got an interesting uh, question. He says, here in Washington and neighboring Oregon, there's a stark West East uh, Democratic Republican Ooh. divide. Is there a situation like this where two states with such extremely similar electorates are so different? And is that, uh, does, does that pay the way for a third party? You know, that's not unique. Pennsylvania is the East and the West. Uh, uh, North Carolina is the, the, the central, the research triangle in Charlotte versus the coast and the rural areas in the West and the East. Uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia versus, uh, you know, the fighting ninth down in the Southwest. So that's not unique. And I don't think it augurs any, any appetite for a third party. I would argue a slightly different take. I think it's more extreme in Oregon, where, the, and it's not a split. I mean, I don't know, 60, 
something percent of state lives, you know, within five miles of the Willamette River. Right. But the 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 the, the people in eastern Oregon and outside of that are, are they're 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 way more aggressive than the people in Pennsylvania are. They're way more aggressive than than you would find the, well, Wisconsin. Maybe Michigan is like Oregon, but in terms of the depth, Oregon has a a uniquely crazy right wing. And if I had to, I had to put top three, I would put it it in Michigan kind of one two. The same is somewhat true in Washington State. Uh, you know, they have a lot of sheriffs that refuse to enforce. Yep. Different stuff. I mean, that, that, that they're more like Idaho, Eastern Washington, and Eastern Oregon are, are, are closer to Idaho than they are Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, they, they and I mean extreme in, Idaho. I don't mean like the people in Boise or anything. I was okay? going to say Boise's <laughs> Boise's closer to Portland or Seattle. So yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're talking about what's that place, Sandpoint, or there's one place that they all yeah. go. <laughs> wow. James, we have a final question, and it's Georgia on our mind. It's Katya in uh, Washington State. Uh, and she asked, is there any harm in people from the outside of the state of Georgia making phone calls to help voters in Georgia for the Senate races? I want to help and not harm. Uh, I'm going to let you answer this because you know more about Georgia than anyone. I would just say to Katya, yeah, it's great to call. It's great to help just as long as you don't have a British or a, a New England accent. So there's a, a, a thing on somebody sent it to me. And I'm sorry, I can't pull it off. I'm too stupid. If you can find it, it's a funny video of a a, a guy like talking like he's a female asking people to vote and it's it's really kind of funny and he hangs up and he says whatever it fucking takes and he was how you doing dear and you know <laughs> it was I, you'd see if you you can you can pull up pull up the thing but it was really funny and it you know people just want to do anything uh i hope that we can post something because one of the real areas that that of contact art it was a good amount of surge voters in the under 35 right and maybe i can talk to the george people if they can put these lists and people can like email them and remind them to vote and et cetera et cetera i, I don't know if but if there's any kind of national coordination for volunteers in, in georgia i bet you they end up with 10 million people <laughs> I, I well my my kid inspired by james carville uh is uh, on his way to being a political hack and he says you can text that's what's really good and then he says of course dad you wouldn't be able to do it so if you okay. can do it god you, you can text as well as make phone yes he can get some Georgia. some yes indeed right yeah um, anything listen keep those keep those uh emails and letters coming we love this segment we love hearing from you uh, and we're going to do it every week. We'll answer as many as we can. Listen, thank all of you for listening today. Please tell your friends and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Please keep those emails and questions coming in. We love them. We'll answer as many as we can next week. And I hope everyone out there will have a very happy and also a very safe Thanksgiving.